Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. I grew up in a small Canadian town called Almer, Ontario. Uh, and like every young boy that ever lived in Canada, I loved hockey. Um, I know this comes as no surprise to any of you, since Americans think that all that Canadians do is play hockey, drink beer, and fund national health care. Um, I can assure you that's not all we do. Um, I grew up, though, loving hockey. I mean, that's, that's what we did uh, all the time. I loved watching Hockey Night in Canada and Don Cherry on Coach's Corner. Um, I loved playing mini hockey in so many different neighbors, like living rooms where we broke several pieces of glass and frames. Um, I loved skating in the backyard ponds that we would make in the wintertime. Um, I loved you know, everything about the wintertime, but I also loved regular old street hockey, which if you go to Canada and see a... Um, if you see a garage door that's all dinged up, you know that children of hockey playing age live at that place. And my house was one of those places. Much to the chagrin of my parents, of course, there's just constantly bang, bang, you know, from people scoring goals, of course. It was, it was, it was great. Um, I can remember playing all the positions, um, but whenever I played goalie, which everyone has to take their turn, you have to go throughout the different things, I felt like I was a little, a little bit of a disadvantage. Um, if you've ever watched hockey, and if you look at the goalie, you realize he's got a lot of gear on. But one of the main things he's wearing are these two huge pads over his legs, the front of his legs. They're big, they're flat there, so they take up a lot of the goal. And I just felt like my skinny little legs weren't doing that good of a job stopping the puck from going in the net. So I felt like I was very much at a disadvantage. Um, and I can remember being very frustrated by this because I thought, I mean, like, my hands are pretty good. I have pretty good stick work. But like this whole middle section, I keep missing these ones over here and here. So, and no one wants to ever be scored through the legs, so I would keep close, but then they'd score on the sides. So I realized I had to find a way to get an advantage. And I can remember um, wanting some, something to help me. And I was going through a Canadian Tire ad. Now, no, none of you know what that is. But what that is, is it's a store in Canada that has department store, it's part hardware store, it's part tire store, it's got all kinds of stuff. But in this advertisement, it opened up, and there it was, and the kid's stuff was a set of goalie pads. I was like, oh, I am going to save my money, and I'm going to buy these, and I'm going to have the supreme advantage at street hockey in, in our driveway. So I did, I, was, I, I got these, I, I saved my money, I asked my parents, and after a few months, I bought these goalie pads. And they were exactly what I wanted them to be. They were like, they, they fulfilled my every dream that these goalie pads could do. I mean, I was stopping stuff left and right. And I think after a few weeks, what really happened is everybody else got good at shooting around the sides instead of just shooting at, at the pads. And they were great. They did a great job. My goalie game went way up after I purchased these. However, something else happened when I, brought, I bought these goalie pads. The pads became very important when the teams were being picked at the beginning of the game. The captains were no dummies, and they knew that if they got the kid with the pads, that they're going to have a lot better chance of keeping the goal out, I mean, the, the puck out of their net. So these pads became very, very important, and I became kind of a hot commodity. 
And eventually, I got sick of playing goals, so I'd kind of share them around who was ever on my team. But that didn't really change the problem much because then that team still had the pads versus the other team where whoever scrawny little legs were in there hopefully could stop as much as they could. So I think eventually the bickering and the fighting f made the parents say, okay, either no pads or you're going to share them around to both teams so we have some sort of like fairness here. So again, Canada's a little bit socialist, but um, that's, that's kind of what we ended up doing. So we shared it around and we, we did it that way. And it worked out fine, but each kid put these, uh, these pads on and they felt like they were going to stop all the goals. And they put their trust in these pads. I mean, it was very much something that helped them. They believed, and rightly so, that these pads would bring them victory, bring them success. They would have glory at driveway hockey. Today, we're going to take a look at Joshua 10 through 11, not the whole thing of 11, but into verse 15. And we're going to come to a place where it may seem like the other team has a massive advantage. Like, almost like, not only do they have numbers, but it almost seems like they've got the goalie pads. And so we realize when we come across this that these kings, when they have joined forces and they come against Israel, they have a clear advantage. Numbers, horses, and chariots. Today we'll watch as Israel is put in a place where they must trust and obey God. It's not a new theme. We've seen this throughout the book. But it is very much a new level of difficulty. It's a new opposition where everything seems to be stacked against Israel, something that seems to be almost impossible. What we'll be doing is cover Joshua 10, 28 through eleven fifteen. But before we start, I'd like you to look here and think about Psalm 20, 1 through 7 for a moment. I'm going to read it, and I want you to consider what a Christian places their trust in. Psalm, and you'll, and you'll become very evident by the end, but let me read Psalm 20, 1 through 7. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Let's pray for a minute. God, as we go into this time together around your word, I ask that you would break down stony hearts I pray you'd give faith. God, would you get past all of my words and speak your words to our hearts? Would you give grace to the hearers that they may be able to receive and they look at the perfect law of liberty and act? Lord, you are the one that does the work in our hearts, so we call on you and we ask that we'd be active listeners, obeyers, ready to hear your word and change. Lord, we trust only you and ask that you would be mighty today in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, about two weeks ago, we had, last week we did Psalm 77, but two weeks ago we were in Joshua 10, the first half, and we learned that God's promises or his words of assurance to Joshua were true, and they're also effectual. And the purpose of the Lord speaking to Joshua, these truths, was to call him to obedient action so that we realized that these promises were not just some words. 
They were actually meant to have him react in obedience. After routing the five kings, we watched God throw down hailstones from heaven, killing more by the hailstones than they did by the sword. By the sword. We watched as God's promises came true. And if you remember, Israel pursued and God gave the enemy into their hand. The episode ended then with this ceremony. Remember this? The five kings were laid out in front of them on the ground. And the chiefs of Israel came to put their foot on the necks of these, these men, these rebellious, God-hating Canaanite kings. And it showed them this. Remember, God had said, no one will be able to stand before you. And literally in front of them, their kings cannot stand. And they have this over them, realizing that it's not by their might, but that God has come through on his promises. And in that action, Joshua tells them, do not fear. There will be much to come here. We're not done yet. And so in that moment, as they stand, seeing, hearing, even feeling with their feet the truths of God, they remember that God had said he would do this. And in the future, they can be very much confident that God will come through on his promises. Joshua and his army trusted God, and they believed the promises, and so they acted. Today, we watch as their actions continue. We'll watch as the author of this book, Joshua, stops the heavily detailed war narratives, and he's going to switch. Instead of giving us a lot of information, he's going to go to these short, brief, high-level battle reports. Instead of a war narrative, now we're getting these war reports about what's going on. And so what's happening here is we're seeing that he is going to, over this time, conquer seven different kings and cities in this next beginning at the end here of chapter 10. We're not seeing occupation, though. We're not seeing them drop off settlers in these places to occupy the land. Instead, and we'll eventually get there. We're going to see that later on in Joshua. Instead, what we're seeing, the first part of the conquest, we're seeing the military strike against these, these peoples. We're watching the Israelites break the backbone of Canaanite power all throughout the southern region so that they are no longer in power. And as I read it, notice it, as I read this in a few minutes here, notice a few things, all right? I want you to pick up on this. In these short reports, we're getting very much the same stuff that we've seen before. But now we're seeing it in an express way where we're seeing several of these things over and over again that they obeyed. Remember at Jericho and I and at the defense of Gibeon, we had a lot of detail about what happened. They devoted them to destruction. They leave nothing that breathes. In other words, they didn't make any covenants of peace or deliverance. Everyone is handled with lethal force. Also notice how Joshua's actions play out, that he is the one taking obedient steps to strike down these people. And at the same time, you are going to see the Lord's name come up over and over as the one who is giving it to them. So we're seeing this blend together of God calling him to do this and him obeying, but it's very clear that God is the one that's actually doing it. Lastly, notice the lack of defeat when we get here. There's, there's no defeat. It's all victories, victories that just keep on rolling. Go to the next one, to the next one. They're piling up these victories. So let me go ahead and read and keep these things in mind. It's a bit of a long section, so I want you to listen for all these things. Joshua 10, 28 through the end of the chapter. As for Machedah, Joshua captured it on the day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Machedah just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Machedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also 
and its kings into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its kings as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all the Israel, of all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he, he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and they devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up to Eg- from Eglon to Hebron, And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its kings and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its kings and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua struck from them, struck from them Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So Joshua has just given us a history lesson and a theology lesson in one. We've talked about this, the nature of the Bible as a whole. Joshua's not here to give us history alone. It certainly tells the truth about history. But he's giving us history so that we might rightly understand theology. We might rightly understand God and how he interacts with his people. How they conquer the territories. And it shows us, though, here, that their obedience to God and his faithfulness to deliver on his promises was true. That what God said would happen was true. And so they obeyed. At the end of this list, they have no other option as a reader but to say, my goodness, I'm impressed by Joshua and his squad. These guys have rolled through the victories. They have a great track record, devoting each one to destruction and doing exactly what they're supposed to do. These guys are kind of unstoppable. But we're not the only ones that kind of see this going on. We're not the only ones that take notice of the victories and the death and the uh, destruction of towns. Like the king of Jerusalem, if you remember, Adonai Zedek, back in chapter 10, a different king now, Jabin, king of Hatzor, notices Israel's powerful move throughout the south. He doesn't respond in fear, though. He doesn't respond in faith. Instead, he responds in defiance. Notice that. That's a really important distinction. He sees the great wonders of Yahweh and all that he's done, their God. He does not trust. He does not ask for help. He does not ask for mercy. Instead, defiantly, he goes against this God. He gathers together a whole host of different kings and territories to face off against Israel. Let's read verse 1 through 5 in chapter 11 there. When Jabin, king of Hatzor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madden, 
and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akfa, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and to the, in the Arabah south of Chinnereth, and the lowland, and, the, and in Naphoth-dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under the Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. This enemy is not like the one that we encountered back in chapter 10. This is of a very different grade. This is not exactly what happened when the five kings came against Gibeon. What we're seeing is a different type of enemy. I'm going to be a couple marks I see. He, this enemy is smart. They have prepared before Joshua ever marches on them, and they've enlisted the help of everyone else in the northern region of Canaan. They know that they need to be ready, and thus they gather a large coalition of different countries to bring diverse strengths to this battle so that they might be victorious. So they're smart. They're also, this enemy is huge. The narrator just described him as a number of gathered soldiers as a great horde. That's usually a term that's talking about like pestilence, grasshoppers, and animals. Like there's so many we couldn't number them. That's how these guys are talked about. There's a horde of people. So much so they say in number like the sand that is on the seashore. This enemy is huge. There's a lot of people coming against them. Not only that, they're united. Consider that they have one common goal, to destroy Israel. And always fighting against someone else, having a common enemy, brings people closer than ever before. They join forces, they come together, and they even encamp together for the sole purpose of fighting against Israel. And lastly, not only smart, huge, united, this enemy is technologically superior. They have far better weaponry. They have the two powerhouse pieces of equipment of the day. If you consider this, they have the horse and they have the chariot. And they are not only just a few of them, they have many, is what the text says. The horse and the rider, if you consider this, were mobile. They were fast. They were elevated above everyone else so they could be down and easily pick people off. And with an, a sword or an axe, they're just deadly to walk and run through troops. And the chariot is fast, again, mobile as well. It's protected from the waist down, roughly. And it had enough space to hold one or two people who would be shooting the archers through these different ranks. And you consider the normal pace of men battling it out on a battlefield, and then you think about a horse running through this area to easily mow over people. This was a superior technological weapon. And if you didn't have it, you wanted it. And if you, didn't, if you wanted it but didn't have it, it's probably because you couldn't afford it. Think about all that went into these different war machines, these horses and these chariots. This group has that. The horse and the chariot were a huge advantage. And it was an advantage that everyone wanted. Now, this is the group that gathered themselves against Israel. What is the reaction of Israel? What would your reaction be? If you had this group come against you, that are described like this, I have a feeling that we might be a little bit afraid. Or we might at least think maybe our winning streak might just come to an end. But we don't see that in the text. Notice what the next thing that happens here is. Instead of seeing a reaction, we watch the Lord step in and speak to Joshua. 
reminding him of his promises and giving him a word of command to move forward despite this daunting list of disadvantages that are set against them. So let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 11 at verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. I love these words of the Lord. I love what he does here. We've heard most of these lines before. Number one, right? We've heard this, don't be afraid. We've heard that echoes throughout the book of Joshua. And then I will give them into your hands, slain. We've heard this before. But then number three is kind of new. He ends by commanding them to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots. Don't, don't get hung up on the fact that we were going to waste these resources. That although, oh man, we, we could use these. You mean we're going to destroy the horses or effectively put them out or destroy and burn all these chariots? I mean, we should not be upset that God ha, you know, is going to destroy the best weapons of the day as though he can't do anything if he doesn't have them on his team. Instead, consider what he's doing. God himself is saying, purposefully showing I am superior to the greatest weaponry that the world can come up with right now. I am far more powerful. And to show you and to show these Canaanites, burn it. Kill all the horses. I don't need those. Kill the horses, slice them back in the back so they're done. They can't be used for battle. And go ahead and burn the chariots. He's purposefully showing his absolute power and superiority over the greatest, most powerful weapons invented by mankind at this point in time. So what happens? Look at verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Mesrephoth Mayim and eastward as far as Valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. So after receiving the promises of God, what does good old Joshua do? He obeys over and over and over again. What's this theme? We see him. He listens to God. He hears the promises and he obeys. He hears it. He trusts. He believes that it's true. He's seeing God be true every time and he steps forth in action, in belief. See, the sovereign control of God should never inspire us to let go and let God as though that's some sort of righteousness. If we just kind of sit back on the sidelines, it's okay, God will take care of it. That's a false understanding of God's sovereignty. We should never, ever abdicate our obedience in the name of sovereignty. What I mean by that is we, we hold this idea that God is sovereign, and He is. But Joshua shows us very plainly. Joshua doesn't stand back and say, okay, give it to us. Instead, he falls upon them suddenly. He goes straight into battle knowing that the promises of God are true. And instead of saying, okay, we'll watch and see what happens, he obeys what God has told him to do. So there's never a chance for us to somehow think that it's okay to blame our disobedience on God's sovereignty. You don't obey God so that you do the things that he can't do, and then you're, he's thankful that you helped him out, obviously. You also don't obey God so that he will, in response to your obedience, do something to help you. You obey God because he is your covenant-keeping, loving God who gave himself for you, who in his great power and wisdom made it possible through Jesus Christ that we might go from rebels 
God-hating, dark, everything, everything that hates God, to sons and fellow heirs with Christ. That's the God that we know. He's changed us from objects of wrath to vessels of mercy. You obey God because you know that he will do what he said. He is right. God's sovereignty doesn't inspire you to release your hands from responsibility. It inspires us instead to engage in wholehearted Christian action, obedience. We learned this last time together, that God's promises are so that we will obey. And he's showing us himself again and again and again. I'm in control. This is what's going to happen. And so... Don't sit by and do nothing. Obey. Do what I've told you to do. And that's what Joshua does. He attacks the great enemy horde suddenly. It's probably one of those night raids or possibly early morning raids. They come upon them when they're not expecting it somehow. And what does God do? He gives the enemy into the hand of Israel. They strike, they kill, they chase, and they leave none remaining. And so what we see is that this great horde has now become a great memory, a great story. In fact, actually, it's also become a great bonfire because what we'll see afterwards is not the temptation being so much that Joshua says, you know what, I can rationalize this. I can keep a few horses. I can keep a few of these chariots. They're going to help us. I mean, wouldn't that be great to, 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 to go forward into battle and do better? No, 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 no. Instead, Joshua remembers the words of the Lord, did not rationalize the way of keeping the horses and using the chariots. He did exactly what God told him to do, he hamstrung the horses and burned the chariots with fire. You can kind of watch, right, as some of the guys stand around and are like, oh, man, I kind of wanted the chariot. I mean, that, that 1402 version is so good. I love that chariot. Uh, that's all, it's, God said, okay, well, I'm good with it. I mean, it, it would have been hard, right, for them to see these beautiful horses and these chariots of strength. I mean, they're talking about superior weaponry of their day burn in front of them. That would have probably been pretty difficult, I would think. Uh, and the truth is, for us, that doesn't seem to make sense to us totally. We're like, well, couldn't, could, couldn't God have used those things for his glory? Or, or couldn't he have, like, uh, I mean, come on, really? Are, are horses and chariots evil? Like, not like none of us have ever asked a question similar to that about things in our life. And these questions are fine. But let's be honest here. No horses and chariots aren't evil but trusting them is. Get that again, ready? Horse and chariots are not evil. Trusting them is evil. Idolatrous, against God. Of course not. They're not, they're not evil, but uh, you know, that's not the real issue here. Yes, God could use the equipment for his glory. Obviously he could, but he certainly doesn't need to. See, there's a bigger problem here. It's the heart. The problem isn't with the chariots. The problem isn't with the, with the horses. The problem with is, our, is our wanter, our desirer, our heart that wants stuff or it wants power or it wants something else. We so easily swap out our perfect and loving and gracious king as the one that we love more than anything else and we put other things there. And God knew that that would have been a temptation for these people so easily. Sometimes there are things that so grab our heart. You're in my heart. They grab our attention. They grab for our, our dependence or our joy that without knowing it, we are actually turning to idolatry. And I know some of you are saying, Chris, are, 
Are you saying we should get rid of our 401ks and get rid of our savings accounts and get rid of our insurance and just, just trust God alone? No, I'm not saying you should get rid of your 401k. I'm not saying get rid of your insurance. I'm not saying get rid of your savings account. I am saying you should trust just God alone. Like that one's still the same. All that other stuff can fall off. We've said it before. If you get God, you get everything. If you don't, all these things will pass away. Without him, you will fail. And you will be destroyed if you do not trust him and him alone. So the problem is not necessarily these chariots. The question, man, maybe they didn't know how to use them. No, 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 no. God is helping them understand right away the problem is your hearts and they will easily trust this instead of me. God gave the command to hamstring the horses and to burn the chariots so that Israel might know that their greatest advantage was not chariots, but it was rather a person, Yahweh himself. The story comes to an end as Joshua and the troops capture Hatzor. Um, by far, Hatzor is the largest of these cities from the surrounding area, and they burn it to the ground. Israel has done this before. They devote the city to destruction, leaving nothing that breathed. But we are allowed to see that they also took plunder. The Lord did give them options for these things. Look at verse 10 here. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword. For Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hatzor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. We are watching as Joshua obeys and follows both the word of the Lord directly, it came to him, but notice who else's name shows up here. Did you notice four times in these short verses who else's name pops into this story who's dead? Moses? What's that about? I mean, he has the word of the Lord, right? How did, how did the law come? Did it, did it not come through Moses as well here giving the people these writings? And he is going back to not only refer to this incredible option that he has, opportunity that God speaks to him, he is also looking at all of us and saying, the Lord has told me what to do. He told me what to do in Moses, and thus I will obey. This all comes then as part or part of the context of covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. It's all inside of that. It's not just a one-off promise to destroy these people. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing obedience to what Moses told them to do back in Deuteronomy. That when they go into the land, this is what they're to do. And even the repetition of his name is showing us that he did it in accordance with these commands. God didn't expect Joshua to obey when he came to you know, him only in this way and hamstring the horses. He expected him to obey in all that he had told him, even if it was through Moses. What we're seeing, though, then, is that Joshua cares far more about what God says than anyone else. Whatever anyone else says, whatever odds might be against him, he'd much rather listen to the words of God, even the ancient words of God, the ones that told him to do this long ago. He shows us 
through his immediate, immediate obedience against this horde that this is true. He also shows us through the burning of the chariots and the hamstring of the horses. And then the author shows us in great detail the city and destruction here. So we are considering that this has been done in accordance with what Moses said. Joshua understood that if he had God, he had everything. Today what we see then, that God's power overcomes all military superiority of all the gathered nations against them. And in the end, he shames the enemy by making their horses useless and burning their war machines, showing very clearly who is the real king of the world. It is Yahweh. It is Israel's king. This God is far superior in might to all of Israel's enemies. He is to be trusted. Consider this for a moment. To burn a valuable commodity, like a chariot, that seems so utterly foolish. Why would you do that? You are so dumb. Why would you do that? Or how about what kind of a place does it put you in? Does it not put you in a place of weakness? You had all this military strength and you decided to destroy it? Consider for a moment, there's a place where that happened even more personally and importantly. Seems like God possibly made foolishness to become wisdom at the cross. A place that the world sees as foolish is the very point that we find our greatest strength to win our soul. It was that place of weakness and foolishness that the true strength and wisdom of God was shown. How do you come to that? Only one way. By faith, by trusting that this God is the one that he says he is. He's shown himself to be true. Why, don't, why does everyone just believe and just do this? This is through faith. We realize it's different is to say, no, I hate you, God. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to reject you, or I'm just not going to listen to you. I don't really care that you're there. And the one who understands who God is, who loves him and trusts him completely, he is to be trusted. Friend, can I just, if, if you're here and you don't know this Jesus Christ, this is not a joke. Only through him, repentance of your sin and trusting him alone, may you know true peace. May you be reconciled. It's not about going to church. It's not about doing good stuff. It's only by trusting him and him alone as the Lord of your life. May I plead with you to trust him and him alone and repent of your sin. It is only through him that you might have true satisfaction and salvation from judgment. But brothers and sisters, as I began today, I told you about Silly illustration of the street hockey gear and having the pads. Um, how they became a hot commodity. Each kid put their trust in these pads. They believed if they had these pads, they would, they would bring them to an advantage that they needed to win the game. Eventually, though, what ended up happening is we all realized the pads were only as good as the person wearing the pads were. And eventually, what became far more important was who was on your team than what equipment you had. Through the course of the time, we realized that it was far more important to have the good players, the people on your team that could do the right stuff, than to have simply the, the equipment. I would ask, though, isn't that true of what we're seeing right here? He have access and, and, and mastery of chariots and horses and numbers, etc., etc. It's far more important who's on your team. This God is superior to all of the weaponry, all of the numbers, all of the skill, all of the alliances that the world can mount. And God alone delivers for Joshua and his people because they trust and love him. The stuff that we hold on to, whether it's material possessions, 
whether it's relationships, whether it's structures, or even whether it's the way that we think about things, our own wisdom will ultimately fail. And if you place your trust in that in any way, it's idolatry. And it's turning your back on God in slight ways. I only say this because this is something that I realize I struggle with as well. That I put part of my faith in God and I put part of my faith in something over here. Or, or I put something over here. I don't even realize it because I think it's wisdom. Like, oh, just, it's a good thing to have a bank account. It's good to have insurance. It's good to have... And then slightly my, my trust begins to shift over here into these things or a house or my family or whatever the thing is. May I just remind you, brothers and sisters, not to trust those things and to hold them rightly, loosely. Chariots are not evil, but loving them and trusting them is evil. Your possessions aren't evil. Loving and trusting them or the structures or whatever, or your job or whatever it is that you trust, that's evil. So may we together, like Joshua teaches us then, turn from these things and trust him alone. He is a jealous God and he wants every bit of our heart. So I pray that we would then also respond in faith and trust this God. Let's pray together. God, we want to trust you alone. We're weak and rebellious and Lord, we ask that you would work in us, teach us to love you and to trust you. I pray that your grace would pour out us, that your, that your Holy Spirit would drive these things into our hearts, that he would use the word as grace to us, that we would be spurred on to greater obedience and faith and trust in you. Lord, we cannot do this, but you can. Lord, we do not want to be distracted by the things of our world, but sometimes we are. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. We need you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.